Welcome to the Queer SLP Podcast. We are two speech-language pathologists who identify with the LGBT plus community. On each episode, we'll highlight relevant queer issues and stories from our field. The Queer SLP Podcast's mission is to provide informative and pertinent content from proud and chatty SLPs. Okay, here we are on the Queer SLP. Yes, we are. Before we get into the episode, I thought that we could check in and see how we're doing. So, Hector, how are you? Uh, I'm doing okay. I recently just got Invisalign, so if you detect a a slight lisp, um, that's why. (laughs) I didn't notice until you said it. No. Yeah, so sometimes I like have excess saliva to manage. Um, other than that, I'm also, oh my gosh, somebody's calling me. Hold on. We might need to redo this. Sorry. (laughs) Someone from work is calling and I'm like, no, you did not get to Microsoft Teams call me at 4.54 PM. Um, I'm not going to pick it up. (laughs) Sorry. I had to wait for it to go to. That's okay. Wait for it to stop. I'm like, why are you calling me at 5 PM? Right. I mean. Like, even if it says I'm available, do not do that. Like, that's rude. I'd probably, like, report writing or something. Anyway, how am I doing? It's been rough. Okay. Last week really hit me Mm -hmm. pretty hard. Um, And by last week, I mean the attempted coup. Okay. So I was going to ask what exactly you meant by that. Yeah, so that was pretty hard. I've just been struggling with managing my own trauma as it relates to everybody else coming around ish. <laughs> and sort of. I mean, you can yeah. interpret that in many different ways. Right. Like there's a lot of people jumping ship and talking about unity without accountability. And I'm struggling with that as a person of color and as a queer person. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the minority is always asked to hold out the olive branch for everybody else in the name of unity. And I'm struggling with that. I also am realizing my boundary is like, I'm only going to invest that energy of like letting people be on their journey for those that I am personally invested in. Everybody else can be on their journey on their own. Like I don't have to like, you know, I can still hold people accountable socially anyway. So that's been weighing on me lately. Other than that, you know, just chugging along, waiting for the vaccine, possibly going back to school in person. So some anxiety with that. But 2021, new year, new me. (laughs) Do you set set, um, resolutions or goals every year? You know, I try to. It's not always like things I will achieve, but just more like ways that I will treat myself better. That's how I... okay. Yeah. So I'm like, I always try to be kinder to myself by doing this. Right. So like meditation has been a big part of the new year. Um, I've started journaling. That's hard, to be honest. (laughs) Journaling is hard. Like, Um, is it hard because you don't know what to say or what? Yeah, like day to day. It's kind of like if you think Mm -hmm. about it, like our podcast, like I feel like I'm not doing enough if I'm not engaged every day. Or if like we're not releasing enough episodes, I feel like, oh, we're just not doing enough, you know, and it's like, hmm. 
how about just say stuff when we need to say things? Yeah. Well, and think about it like if your friend said, oh, I'm not doing this right or doing this enough, what would you say to that? What would you say to your friend, Hector? Right? Right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right? That's the hardest part, right? Is kind of like taking your own advice. I say I'm journaling to be kinder to myself, but I'm like getting on myself for not journaling enough. <laughs> you can journal about that. Journal right. about your You're guilt about not journaling. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's that's it for me. What about you? How are things? How's New York? How's life? I I love living here. We're settling in. We bought some land mm-hmm. in my hometown. It's yeah. one and a third acre to build our dream home on. And it's great seeing my mom more often. She just is delighted to see me. Let's see. What else? I I am still waiting for my license in New York, but I am doing conferences and meeting people and giving some advice on feeding therapy, um, things like that, mm-hmm. just to get my feet wet while I wait for my license. Mm-hmm. So that's exciting. And also, um, I got my first dose of vaccine. <sighs> How was your reaction? Tell us about that. My only reaction was the reaction that I have whenever I get a flu shot, which is soreness around where I get the injection. But other than that, it it was fine. And I'm really grateful that I have the opportunity. Should we talk a little bit about the episode? Yeah. So today is a proud professional episode and you are all in for a treat because there is a backstory to this episode that we did. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, Tell us a little um, bit about that, Natalie. so Hector and I reached out to our proud professional and we started getting in talks. We really wanted to do a two episode um, series with, with this person. So we had a, a meeting ahead of our recording and we're talking about the episode, what we want to say, you know, what he wants to say. And through all this, I told him that I went to the Institute of Health Professions in Boston. And he said, oh, when? And I told him from 2001 to 2003. And then he's like, do you know so-and-so? And I was like, yeah, we were good friends in grad school. And he said, I think we hung out. And I was like, wait a minute. And then, and then it dawned on me that yes, we had hung out. We had a mutual friend and uh, we actually attended our very first pride together in 2002. And as part of that celebration, we went to the Dyke March in Boston right. in 2002 and ended up walking next to each other, holding the Dyke March banner. Like at- 20 years ago, right? 19. 2002. Yeah. So 19 years ago, Mm -hmm. um, check the Instagram for proof. We will be posting that photo. (laughs) Yeah. AC had a picture uh, of us holding the banner. And it was just sort of this really trippy connection that we had. And we were acquaintances and we would go dancing together sometimes and pride and things like that with this mutual friend. And it, it just was really hilarious and we bring it up in the episode so just so you know the backstory on that it just was really amusing to me and uh, great to reconnect with an acquaintance and know how his life has gone and what he's up to and it it was just really funny that was a treat 
But you know, the queer community is small, but the SLP community is even smaller, which means that the queer SLP community is that much smaller. So I'm not surprised that we all have connections, but that's kind of the way the world is. But um, it was an unintended connection. It just tickles me. It's very serendipitous. Right? And I never get to use that word. Right? <laughs> I, I don't know if you remember, Hector, but when we did my Proud Professional episode, mm-hmm. remember we talked about how Pride had this sort of connection mm-hmm. in, in me that I didn't even realize until we recorded. Right. This is just like another Pride connection right. that was significant in my life, and I never even realized how significant it was. Right. And I think it just kind of... Hall, not hallmarks, bookmarks the importance of, of pride. You know, yes. like it creates connection in ways that we don't even realize. So right. there's the beauty of that. Um, so stay tuned for this proud professional episode. You all will enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and just and just a uh, a forewarning that some of some of the things that our guest brings up are very difficult to hear. But I really think that this is something that we need to hear as a community. And we need to change. Right. But you will like it. Yeah. This is a great, he's a great person. Yeah. So here we go. Oh, welcome to the Queer SLP. My name is Natalie. My pronouns are she, her. And my name is Hector. And my pronouns are he, him. Today, we have a fantastic guest from Toronto, most recently, AC Goldberg. Hello. Thank you for having me. And my pronouns are he and him. We are here to talk about your story and your journey as a Queer SLP. Hector, do you want to start with a question? Yeah. With every Proud Professional episode, we like to start from the beginning. So AC, if you could kind of just walk us through your journey from whenever you want to start to now, the table is yours. All right. Well, it's not an easy story to to tell or to listen to. So I hope that listeners understand that there's a lot of trauma that um, comes along with my journey, um, just in terms of being in this profession. I just moved to Toronto under three weeks ago from um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. I went to grad school in Boston when Natalie and I actually knew each other. Um, (laughs) In, In the wildest of strange things that happened. (laughs) because <laughs> um, we uh, haven't spoken in almost 20 years. But. I know. I, I had absolutely no idea that this was you and um, got a picture to prove that we came of age together, which is really cool. Um, but, you know, that was one of the harder times of, of my life. And that and my early profession, grad school, which is when we crossed paths, and my early profession were really, really difficult. You know, I left grad school hoping that it would be a little different than the actual program that I experienced. In my program, there really wasn't a lot of diversity. Um, There certainly weren't a ton of queer people, although one of my very good friends was queer and was in my program and was awesome, and we would hang out together. And there was maybe one other, two other people I spoke to, but um, you know, I really felt very othered in, in graduate school and I, I enjoyed the studying so much and I liked the classes and I liked my professors and I really, you know, just kind of felt like, well, you know, this isn't the right school for me, but this is totally the right profession profession for me and I'm going to totally love it. And I had a hard time with internships being told things like you can't wear that, um, you can't look like that. You can't be called that name. 
And I, I really thought that all of that would be behind me when I graduated. And I got a clinical fellowship at like a really prestigious hospital. And immediately my supervisor, the first day I, I got there and I was so excited, my first day of my clinical fellowship and I showed up in a tie and she said, you can't come to work wearing drag. And what that set the tone for the harassment for the six months before I quit. Um, you know, every day it was something new about what I was wearing, what I was allowed to be called. Um, she insisted on calling me by my dead name, even though she has a nickname that she's called. She would introduce parents of children to me in the waiting room and tell them that they should watch me because she wouldn't want someone like me alone with her child. What? She made me sign a bathroom log for a single stall. Anyone could use it bathroom with details about what I did in there. And that's how I quit. I wrote it on the bathroom log. I told her that I quit. Um, and I didn't say anything. I just left. And then I told her boss that I quit. And since then, I actually re reconnected with that boss because I, I saw that she was still there and I knew that she and I had connected and I reached out and I said, you know, I want to explain to you what actually happened because I don't think you understood it. And we had a couple of meetings and I actually wound up doing a training for um, their department before I moved before, prior to COVID. Um, and, you know, that was a nice way to sort of Get, go back there and be in that space and be in an educational um, role. But, you know, there was no recourse for me back when that happened. And I couldn't even really explain, you know, I kept trying to explain the harassment to the boss's boss, you know, to the, to my supervisor's boss. I kept going and being like, you know, things aren't going so well with my supervisor. And she was like, well, a lot of people have trouble with their supervisors. And I was like, this is, this is different. Like, you know, she, she's like what I'm wearing. She's making me sign a bathroom log. And she was like, well, do you go to the bathroom too much? And I was like, I'm not like going to the bathroom in between my settings. I go to the bathroom as much as anyone else. It's because of how I look. And she actually didn't understand it. And I think it's truly because she would, it wouldn't have crossed her mind. So I had a really hard time just even complaining about it because I couldn't explain it, that that was the type of harassment I was experiencing. And it was too scary to say things like I'm transgender. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was just too scary. I couldn't enforce the right, pronoun use. I couldn't, I couldn't go by the name I wanted to, you know, at around that time when I, when I had quit, I reached out to a mentor of mine who was um, a gay SLP um, in a school district. And he was like, come on over. We've got, we've got positions, you know, have an interview. And I had an interview and I got that job and I worked for nine months. I finished my clinical fellowship um, in that school district and I loved it. And, um, you know, everyone loved working with me and I had a great time. It was about three weeks before the end of the school year and it was pride month and they were doing this like, you know, safe schools initiative. And my principal urged me to come out publicly to, it was a group of like older students and maybe some stakeholders. I'm not sure. Was it an um, elementary school? It was a K to eight. And, you know, I, I came out um, sort of, it was like a pep rally with like announcements. I can't remember exactly what it was because, you know, it, it wasn't a type of space I had ever really been in. It was people were making announcements, the GSA people got up, I, but I hadn't been involved in any of that, that whole year. I had just kind of been an SLP and not really connected with them. I was connect, I was making 
department connections. I was learning who was who in the SPED department, you know, the usual things that you do when you're in a new job. I kind of hadn't made all of those connections yet. And, you know, I came out, I talked a little bit about who I was, what I did with the school. And the very next day, um, without anyone's saying she could or she could not, the SPED department um, had fired me um, and said that it wasn't appropriate for someone like me to work in a school. And that was 2004. So at that time, there wasn't any recourse. And the principal, who I had to sit down with after that happened, said, you know, I would tell you to sue, but I know that you that you don't aren't protected from this. And I'm so sorry. I can't believe I she she blamed herself for telling me that I should, you know, come out. Like she was so supportive of me. And she felt bad. We actually stayed in touch until she passed away recently. Um, she felt really bad. So, you know, I kind of felt like I had nowhere to go. And Another SPED director who I had worked with, having had an internship in a school where um, she had done some oversight, took me into a charter school where she and I shared an office and we loved being in the same space. And she had so much great feedback and I loved working with the kids and I loved having her as a boss. And that was my next year as an SLP. After she left, she kind of went into full retirement after I had been in that school for a year and a half and someone else took over and she sexually harassed me. Um, She touched me. She stalked me. I reported it. I was not taken seriously. I was told by the headmaster, like, well, what do you expect kind of being like that? looking like that, you know, isn't that, isn't that sort of what you're looking for? Isn't it nice to have, you know, someone's attention like that? And I was disgusted. I then quit that job without notice. So this is, you know, my sort of my, my second job I'm quitting without notice. And I remember it was the, the first day of the winter break and I just went and I emptied out my office and I left a note that I wasn't coming back. And from there, I had done some summers at a mental health facility working with um, adolescents who had comorbid um, psych and language difficulties. And I went back there because I had done some per diem work for them as well. I went back there and from there I was fired because a family of a student complained that I was using the correct pronoun for her. And they had her hospitalized because part of the reason was because she was insisting that she was trans. And so to have me affirm her and go against the family was problematic in that setting. And they basically told me in that hospital, we can't have you doing that. We can't have you giving validation to these people. And at this point, I was fully back in a closet. I couldn't tell anyone who I was. And I was scared. I was scared to go to work every day. I was scared that someone was going to find out I was trans. I was scared that I, I, I just validating someone was against the rules um, because apparently that was part of her psychological condition. And it wasn't, you know, when I looked back on that, the entire reason that person wound up in a hospital like that was because she was mistreated for being trans. I mean, I spent a lot of time with her. All of the complaints about her behavior and her her pragmatics, they were all because she wasn't fitting into someone's gendered expectations of what someone assigned male at birth would be like as a, you know, like a young teen. 
And it was just terrible to watch what was done to her. And there I was just using the right name and pronoun and being told, you know, you're, you're done here. Like, this is not acceptable. Like you're, you're giving into this fantasy. And I was like, this is, this is BS. I, I'm glad that I'm out of here. After that, I found my way to a public school district where I was able to fly under the radar. And I flew under the radar for three years and got professional status, came out and was able to use my right name and pronouns. So we're talking now, this is maybe by 2010, I was out at work. Were you um, dressing any differently or I was, say when you were in a closet completely, does that mean that you started changing no, the way you presented outwardly? No, I mean, I just... I didn't, in the closet for me meant that I just didn't enforce the right name. I, I used, I've always gone by AC, but I didn't enforce using the right honorific or pronoun. During all that, I also was pursuing a doctorate just so that I could have a gender neutral title. You know, I didn't enforce use of the correct title or pronoun until 2010 when I had professional status at that job. And then I spent 10 years pushing for them to get training so that the other professionals in the district could come out of the closet and so that students were not subjected to administrators violating FERPA and teachers gossiping about their trans status and was unsuccessful. And last winter, I applied for a job in Toronto where there, I mean, it's a clinic that even provides gender affirming voice services and, you know, gender voice modification is something that I've done on the side for many years. And it's not my primary thing that I do, but I'm so excited just to work in a space where I don't ever have to worry about a trans person being mistreated. Mm -hmm. Um, Because as much as I I loved, I worked in that district for 14 years and I loved it. And those are my people and I miss them every single day. Nobody in that district is trained and kids are suffering. I can yell, you need training until I'm blue in the face and nobody listens. And, you know, that's, that's my journey and it's been rough. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm sitting here sort of speechless. I, thank you so much for sharing. I think that our listeners really need to hear that this happens. But I, you know, I, I'm sitting here counting through all the jobs that that you went through and had to leave for one reason or another, and it just blows my mind. And I don't know if maybe it's because I'm from that mindset of the director that you talked to, where it just wouldn't have even occurred to her to treat a person like that. You know, maybe I'm naive, but I, I'm sitting here thinking, how could anybody be like that? Yeah, it's unfortunate because it's not just it's not just, you know, one person. It's it's a lot of people. And it's not just me. I mean, I am part of um, some other trans SLP groups now. And all of us have very similar experiences, um, not not universally, depending on sort of where someone is in the country, how old they are. Because back when we're talking like the, you know, the early 2000s, when, when we were, you know, holding that banner up at the Boston Dyke March together. But, you know, we're talking about that time when it wasn't widely known that being transgender was something you could be and certainly wasn't accepted. And, you know, trying to sort of be in a profession where most people see it as important to fit a certain mold, you know, and I have never fit into any mold anywhere. And I always figured, well, I'll just stick out. But I didn't expect to, and I'm always going to stick out, but I didn't expect to experience that level of harassment from so many different types of administrators, school administrators, hospital administrators, SLPs. SLPs were the worst. Mm -hmm. 
I'm still having a hard time coming up with words. But I think that's kind of a testament to what we're talking about for the podcast in general when we talk about even just being transgender socially, it's hard enough. You throw in the intersectionality of being a professional as well. And anything that is sort of like fought for isn't applied in the professional setting because it's encouraged to, you know, don't mix those two. I think that what's a really important thing for everyone to know is that every single SLP who harassed me is still a working professional. Some of them hold very high ranking positions. Now I can file complaints against them, but they haven't harassed me in so many years that it's not like it could, there would be no point in that. Like, what am I going to get revenge against some woman who probably doesn't even remember me? But uh, although maybe they do, I, I, the thing about it is that, they're out there still. And, you know, we need the younger generation of SLPs to go into the field having had training so that they can speak up when people in their workplace, colleagues, clients, students, anyone is mistreated because the people who did this to me still work out there and they are the gatekeepers. They are the bosses. Right. Still. Yeah, they. Th- that's the thing with the way that our supervision works. Even just being like a CF mentor, imagine being a newly grad person and you're in your coming out situation and your mentor is being transphobic. What do you do? Like you don't have a position of power to advocate for yourself. And so it's so important that we, like this episode specifically, you know, showcase that there needs to be a more, more than just awareness, action. Because I think at this point, I, you know, I can only speak for myself, but I feel like there's enough awareness at this point. Whether or not you choose to do something about it is to be determined, I think, especially in our field. I have a question. So we talked a lot about your experience as a professional. You're not just an SLP and you're not just a trans person. I want to learn a little bit about like baby AC and kind of like how you came into your own and you know, your identity and, and how you felt before going into grad school. I will tell you a little bit about baby AC if you want. Please tell us. I want um, So, okay. I never really felt like I fit in and I never really cared. I never really wanted to fit in. And when I was maybe 14 years old, I discovered the Grateful Dead. And I thought, these are my people. Now I have a place to go. And I can, I can wear what I want, I can dance how I want, and I can be myself in this space. And I kind of didn't have a lot of like self-exploration because I really found a place that where people engaged in self-exploration that was so introspective and so different from what, you know, sort of like your standard American high schooler and college student engages in. I was engaging in things with shamans and, you know, doing all sorts of really interesting stuff, like back when I was very young. And I didn't have sort of the standard, like, oh, you know, this is 
you know, the group of queer kids and this is this and this is that because I never really felt strongly attached to any labels that people normally give to themselves when they're sort of coming of age. You know, I so when you were when you were at this time, like, were you in an urban area? Were you in a rural area? Like what what, what kind of what was oh, the setting okay. like when you, so where you were growing up? I grew up in a suburb in Jersey. Um, okay. And, you know, so right outside New York City. Um, so I used to go and go into New York and see a lot of shows and I had a lot of friends and we would go and we would, we would see shows and we would dance and we would sing and we would make music together. And I taught myself how to play the guitar and, you, you still know, play? oh yeah, I still yeah. sing in a Grateful Dead cover band, although I moved away from them. So, you know, um, <laughs> We're we're doing happy I, dances now. Um, I can't um, I, I can't actually YouTube? say that anymore. Um, oh, there are archives. Um, <laughs> there, there, there are some archives there. I can't really say that I do that anymore because I can't because my bandmates are are not here. So I started. I was very alternative from a very young age, and I still am. In my sort of external life, I present as like the suburban dad who, you know, I've got two kids and a spouse who looks not the same gender as me, and a cat and a car. And, you know, I I look sort of like your standard suburban dad, but I have a very alternative lens. And it doesn't just have to do with being trans, it has to do with probably the amount of drugs that I did growing up <laughs> and whether you want to edit that out or not, I don't really care. Um, it's part of the journey, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's sort of my, um, I just have a different vibe than, you know, I think like your standard suburban dad with a nine to five, but yeah, I mean, so I, I grew up in, in suburban New Jersey and I made my way to the Boston area um, after college. And, you know, from there, I was there for over 20 years. I just moved up here. So now I live in Toronto, which is surprisingly more like where I grew up than Cambridge was, which is where I lived for so many years. Um, so um, did you go to college in New Jersey? I went to Vassar in New York. Um, so like Poughkeepsie. And were you out then? I mean, no. Um, I didn't know what being trans was. Yeah, but it's funny because I, you know, when people are like, well, were you out? Like, I, I wasn't really closeted until I became an SLP and realized that there were elements of myself that I had to hide in order to fit in in a profession where I didn't fit in. You know, I never defined myself as, you know, one specific thing. So growing up, you know, I just was kind of whoever I was and I looked how I looked and, you know, my parents always had a problem with how I looked, um, you know, with my, I had white person dreads and now I know better, but, you know, I was wearing my tie-dyed shirts and all sorts of, I had these hemp sandals that biodegraded on my, while they were on my feet. Um, I have a vision in my head right now. I like the dreads and the, the tie-dye and the Grateful Dead in the background. I still wear all that. I mean, you should, like, I mean, I, I still have most of the same clothes that I had in high school. Um, you know, I'm one of those people who doesn't like to get anything new because everything that I've owned still works. Um, so I really try to be frugal in that regard. You know, I like fix things instead of getting new things. Um, so, you know, I've got a lot of the same pants and shirts and things like that from when I was a kid, like in high school. But, you know, I wasn't really out 
because there wasn't something to come out as because there I didn't know. And, and I, I knew I felt different, but like I didn't really know what kind of different it was. And then, um, you know, in college, my friends were a mix of all sorts of people. And I sort of my senior year got into this amazing apartment situation with um, three queer women. And that was sort of my first like immersive experience in queer culture. And they're amazing people. And um, we're still friends. That was my first, it almost felt like an immersion experience. Like I had gone, you know, abroad for my junior year, and I learned how to speak Maori. And it was like being in a whale rider, I taught in a single room schoolhouse in rural New Zealand, it was incredible. And that was an immersion experience. And then I came back and I had like a queer immersion experience. And it was like, you know, <laughs> like, oh, American college queer. Like I, you know, it, it was a whole, it was its whole own thing. Yeah. Um, it, and, and I liked it, you know, and it wasn't like I didn't fit in, but I knew, you know, back then it was like, people were always asking me like, are you a lesbian? And I was like, no, like, I don't know. And they were like, well, you know, do you, do you like to, do you like state women or men? And I was like, yes. Um, (laughs) You know, like I, I doesn't really matter to me. Like I'm, you know, I'm like free loving, you know, like I'm all about just someone's vibe and like, you've got the grateful dead mentality. I had like the Woodstock, like early seventies, like free love situation. And I didn't feel the need to define my sexuality. And I still don't um, because it doesn't matter to anyone else. So I felt kind of like pinned down by labels. I didn't want to have any. I remember once my friend um, trying to be helpful, he was like, just say it, just say it, just say I'm a lesbian, just say it, say I'm a lesbian. And I said, I'm a lesbian. And he was like, how did that feel? Like thinking I was going to be like, I'm liberated. And I was like, I have your moment. I was like, I don't know. It felt like a lie. Um, and like, I just remember that moment. That was like, that was thick air. I was like, Ooh, it felt like a lie. Why did it feel like a lie? Maybe it's just not true. Maybe, but that was like maybe my first inkling that like there's something, but that's not it. That was an interesting moment for me because I think that he was really like trying to liberate me. Um, and it was not, it did not help me. But, you know, as I sort of in the Boston area, when I came up, I was introduced very quickly to that friend's friend who was um, a queer woman. Um, and that's how I met you, Natalie, back then. Um hey. That was very much like, you know, she very proudly owned her lesbian identity. And, and I was kind of like, I guess that's me too. Like, I just didn't know what to do because I didn't have another community. I had the Grateful Dead community, but I didn't have that in my grad program. I didn't have too many people around who were a part of that, that I sort of already knew, um, you know, and I would go and I would, you know, meet people out at shows and hang out with them. And I actually still know some of them, but it didn't feel like a group of people that I could go out and be a young person with. And, you know, the queer community was great for that and really embraced me. And that's when I met my first trans people. And I was like, oh, that's some, I get it. And that's, that's what I am. And that's how I figured it out. I mean, it took me, I didn't have the language. Like I remember meeting my first trans guy and him being like, yeah, you know, uh, I'm a, I'm a boy. And me being like, oh, and like people just call you him and they call you by that name. And he was like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it goes. And I was like, I guess I could do that too. And, you know, it took, 
it actually took me a long time to feel like I could say that. And I kind of like dipped my toe in the water a few times during those grad school years. And I told people and most of them were highly affirming. And that was, you know, I actually met my spouse when I was in graduate school. She was very, very affirming. And that felt like, okay, I can have this and I can be this, but then I had to shove it away because of my career. And so it it was very stifling. So were you able to sort of put all those things aside and work? Or did you feel like your, your, um, your therapy suffered because of all the things that were going on, not related to that patient right there? No. I mean, I felt like I was an awesome therapist and I always got incredible feedback. Like, I think that what it caused me to do was, you know, imposter syndrome is a really real thing for trans people um, because people are always accusing us of like not really being who we say we are, you know, not really, you know, present. Do you know, do you both know what imposter syndrome is? Mm hmm. Okay. I don't know how known those things are, but I don't really actually think I have imposter syndrome, but I think that in order to show people that I was worthy of being employed and worthy of being considered a good colleague, I really have always gone very much above and beyond for, you know, my clients and their families and students and colleagues, because it, even for my bosses, because I've never wanted to be seen as anything aside from an excellent SLP in spite of the fact that people might have looked at me and been like, I can't make sense of your gender. Um, I've always wanted to be seen as, you know, someone who can provide a high quality service and you can sort of put that aside and be like, Oh, right. It's a trans person. Trans people are awesome. They can be, you know, completely typical, just like us. I mean, I've kind of always wanted that to be the thing that shines is that like, oh, you know, a great SLP and also transgender, like those things can coexist. Yeah, I can definitely uh, relate to that as a yeah. as a gay male in early childhood. It's you, you want to be known for your professionalism and your expertise in your field and not, it's almost like you kind of like overcompensate so that there, that your enoughness is is <laughs> is not taken away and so we yeah. kind of become like really good therapists because at the end of the day if you can't knock me for that even though you're going to knock me for my sexuality or, or gender expression or, or whatever i'm still a good therapist i think that's very common in the lgbtq plus professional world is to be like go-getters because i we don't want to be yeah. i think take- there was quite a lot of over overcompensation in order to be taken seriously going on. But, you know, I mean, it got me a, a steady job and it, it got me to where I am today, but it, it was definitely a lot of overcompensation in the, in the early years and probably even still, I mean, I really, I try really, really hard all the time. And, you know, I definitely know other people who don't and I'm like, yeah. huh. Like maybe I could take it easy, but, but I don't want to, because I still want to provide a high, the highest quality of care that I possibly can to anyone who I see as a client. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Okay. So one question that we always ask is uh, because it is the proud professional segment. What does that mean to you to be a proud professional? You know, I think to be a proud professional for me is just to finally be able to have sort of the combination 
of being a professional and also being able to be out as transgender and not have my actual work be defined by that. And to have people see me as a great therapist, a great clinician, someone who owns a cultural responsiveness platform and, oh, right, he's trans. I think, you know, I feel very proud of having made it, you know, almost 20 years into a career that felt very hostile when I started. And it makes me proud to be pushing our profession in a direction where people are more understanding and, you know, have the ability to empathize and relate to people within the LGBTQIA plus community. That makes me really proud to be doing that work. I love that. Natalie, do you have any other questions? Because I have another one. (laughs) Go for it, Hector. Okay. So a lot of our listeners are, you know, baby SLPs coming into their CF or, you know, even still in undergrad. Having had your experience, not just as a professional, but going through grad school, is there any advice you would give them, you know, or anything that you would say to do differently even? Should they face any issues or even just anything encouraging? Well, baby queer SLPs, your experiences hopefully will not be nearly as horrific as mine, though I do over at my transplanting Instagram account have many, many baby queer SLPs who contact me. And a lot of them are having negative experiences, even just in graduate school and going out on placements and being told what to and what not to wear. Know your rights. If you don't know your rights, subscribe to me at Transplaining, and I can teach them to you. I know them state by state. I know them federally. I keep my finger on the pulse of every single lawsuit, and I can tell you how to protect yourself in a workplace situation. I can tell you what to say. I can tell you the laws to quote, and I can help you. And, you know, I'm creating a platform that you will be able to have references and you will be able to have printouts of your rights and the fact that you can present however you want. The First Amendment protects freedom of speech and expression, and your expression includes your gender presentation. So, you know, even just remembering that, being able to say that to a supervisor saying, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm well within my First Amendment rights to be being as I am, whether or not it's you're being accused of wearing something that isn't appropriate for your gender at work, um, which is so ridiculous because people think that they can tell your gender by looking at you. So they tell you what to wear or they tell you that you can't use the right name. Um, you know, there's a lawsuit um, that basically says you can because nobody it's not within anyone else's First Amendment right to tell you what you should be called. So I've got a lot of resources for you. And you know, you're not alone. Like I'm here. And there's other ones of us here who have, you know, kind of made it through, you know, obviously, you're listening to this podcast, so you've heard plenty. Um, but you know, there's a lot of us here who have made it through. But you know, there's, there's a lot more protection for you than what I had in the horror stories that I told for my early employment. I mean, it's funny because in spite of all of that, I really love being an SLP and you will really love being an SLP also. And if you run into any issues, there the laws on your side now in the US. Even in even in the most conservative of states, the federal employment laws on your side. Don't don't hesitate to use that type of language with supervisors who are harassing you. Thank you. Yeah. Love that. So I guess I have a, uh, a question for you about what you're doing currently. So our listeners 
may not know that you have a training program called Transplaining. Yes. Um, and you do workshops for people and educational seminars. Is that correct? So I'll tell you a little bit about Transplaining. So Transplaining is a cultural responsiveness platform, a learning platform for, you know, not just SLPs, but, you know, obviously I'm an SLP who founded it. So I'm, I'm targeting SLPs because I know that there's a lot to be learned. And also because we are the people who influence language and we are the people who understand language, we can, from our positions, impact the language of people in hospitals, clinics, and schools everywhere just by knowing the terms. You know, if we are the people who understand the language and we work in so many places, when these things come up, at, you know, somebody can come to an SLP and say, you know, I don't know what this means. This person says that they're non binary and, you know, what I don't understand what a pronoun is. I mean, you know, obviously we can talk until we're blue in the face about what pronouns are we well no we can't because they're really simple but um, we, um but we can talk ad nauseum yes, way. um but when people don't understand things linguistically we're the people to come to and that's where things sort of started and i brought my friend chris in who is a camp professional who has this very similar employment history and basically we decided that and he's been a camp professional for many years although he isn't right now and he wants to impact the gendered spaces um that you know summer camps and day camps have um so and can, you, can you tell us what gendered spaces means before you move on oh yes um yeah like, here's your camp, the boys go here in this bunk, and the girls go here in that bunk. And we don't have any policies that have to do with trans campers. Um, we don't know what bunk to put you, you know, you say you're a girl, but your intake form says you're a boy. So we're going to put a girl in a boy's bunk, you know, just because of a uh, a box that was checked by a doctor who did your intake form. But my, my platform transplanting is to address sort of the holistic differences in the ways the practice of cultural responsiveness is that um, learning about people with different backgrounds, be it sociolinguistic, be it linguistic, be it cultural, um, any sort of differences that we're learning continually throughout our lives because reaching, you know, a point of cultural competence is not possible if you're continually learning because there are always going to be new things and there's always more to learn. So what I have done is take a platform and what I do there is I give my subscribers access to an initial session where I just do some vocab and some general, you know, this is why you need to know this vocabulary. This is when it's clinically relevant. This is what to do when this comes up in your workplace school or, you know, elsewhere in your life. This is what to do if you have to write a note about it. The, you know, if this is what you should do if you have to deal with an insurance company. But here's mostly how to deal with the person who's giving you the information. And then we do things um, on a rotating, flexible basis, like go through people's intake forms and talk about what's microaggressive on them. And I can talk about what microaggressions are. We're also, you know, I'll do interview, we've done inclusive materials, we've done inclusive materials modules where we've come up with inclusive materials. I have someone, Molly, who's come up with this amazing platform called Illustrate Your Voice, where she, we went through some materials and I was explaining my problems with them. And she was like, you're right. None of these make any sense. We need real people. And I said, that's what I said, exactly. And she drew them. 
And um, so if you want to be drawn by Molly and illustrate your voice, you should definitely go do that because she's making these graphics free for people who want to make materials, but not to sell materials. Real people who look like real people. So, you know, inclusive materials, I've done inclusive AAC modules where, you know, somebody pulls up their board and we take a look at it and, you know, they've got things like gender, sexuality, and sex like sex words, like sex, the verb all on the same page and it's hidden. And that's still the, that's the page where you report abuse. Also, we've done things like reprogram someone's entire AAC device um, as a group to sort of recategorize and make the vocabulary not only more accessible, but not to limit the vocabulary of self-expression that all children should have access to. I mean, children should be able to talk about the fact that they have two moms or that, you know, their aunt is a lesbian. They should be able to say that, but they can't can't because of the way that their devices are configured. It's like people conflate, you know, sexuality, gender, and sex terms and think that, you know, these are all things that children shouldn't be saying um, when really, you know, a child expressing something like, uh, my dad is gay, it should be completely within the realm of something that an AAC device can do. There's a lot more to that too, but um, what we're doing is broadening the platform and bringing in um, more intersectional uh, guests so that we can really be practicing what we preach. So we've got some programming coming up in January where um, I have Jordan Carroll coming in to talk about racism. Um, I have my friend Beck G. Cohen coming in to talk about trauma-informed practices in working with um, trans youth and, you you know, other community members as well. And really, you know, what I'd like to do is create a really robust platform where people can go to engage in cultural responsiveness, because we don't have that in any singular place for SLPs. You know, we have, you can go to speechpathology.com and take an outdated class on, you know, I took um, class. <laughs> exactly. Some of them are really outdated. Yeah. I mean, but you can go onto those platforms and you can take one outdated class, but it doesn't really encourage an ongoing conversation. You're watching something recorded. And very soon, actually, possibly by the time this episode airs, I'm going to have some recorded content so that people can do some self-study and still subscribe so they can engage in live sessions, but they can watch things like me doing someone's intake forms with them and me um, talking about inclusive materials with a group of people who actually show how the materials work. Because the problem is that a lot of the time people will buy inclusive materials and be like, oh, yay, this uses the singular they. And then they won't use that because they don't know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um so I'll be doing some inclusive materials, demos, just things that, you know, people can watch on their own time. And that way, when we all have live sessions together, we're all sort of starting with the same understanding. And I don't sort of have this rolling admission of people who have had certain modules with me and people who haven't. I'm wondering, you have this amazing thing that you're doing with transplaining. How did your history as an SLP and the things that you went through, how did that uh, inspire you to make transplaining? Did it, you know, did it influence you or was it completely separate? Like, how did that come to be? I can't seem to get people to get training. So I figured, mm -hmm. you know, I, I started giving trainings live in, I don't know, maybe like 2012. 
uh, maybe like 2013, but I, I had I had a speaking history before that and wrote an article for the Asha Leader magazine in maybe 2018, and that got me in a few more places. But what I was trying to do and what it felt like was I was trying to shove myself through an invisible door that nobody wanted to open. And then all of a sudden, Zoom reality. People were a lot more willing to engage And I could get myself into places like UCSF. I could get myself into countries like India. And I thought, wow, you know, there is, there are actually people out there who want this. And I'm not just going to the same Boston area places and offering up something that they don't necessarily want to pay me for. Um, I can offer a low cost, you know, training to all SLPs or other providers, educators, etc who actually want to engage in this you know type of cultural responsiveness which is you know sort of really important to our field but a lot of people don't see it that way if i can get people to engage in this type of platform then the need for training will be a little bit less pressing because there will be allies out there, like an army of allies Mm -hmm. saying things like, oh, hey, that's racist. Or like, we can say that, you know, that like, that isn't transphobic. You know, things like people, people knowing the difference between they, what they can bring to their spaces, what they shouldn't bring to their spaces, how to handle it when someone comes out to them, how to handle people's names on documents, how to handle their intake forms when they don't match up with the client's appearance. I mean, people don't understand how to do that and they they bumble through those interactions and i think that my main my main impetus for actually starting the platform you know obviously it was a great opportunity to use zoom but it was that i was so tired of being on the end of less than competent healthcare providers that's what started me when i started training in the in the first place that's what started me off was i need my healthcare providers to be better at this to be better at interacting with me and it sort of turned into this, which is, I mean, it's, I'm so excited. I love my subscribers so much. I couldn't ask for a nicer group of people to work with. It's people who want to do the, the work and they're really doing it. They're awesome. I don't remember if I answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was asking, you know, did your past and your experience as an SLP, like how did that inspire or inform the way that you went about it? Yeah, you know, did did that influence you? You kind of did. I mean, I'm not sure how it couldn't, but you know, I don't want to assume. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that it was a combination of my feeling mistreated as as someone on the other end of medical professional um, situations, and also my feeling like I was being mistreated at work, and me watching other people get mistreated also. It, it, was, it was really hard, you know, for it's always hard to watch trans people get mistreated. I mean, that has, it, it continues to happen in front of me. And there's got to be a way to arm other people to handle those interactions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you offer CEUs for I going do. through your course? See, mm-hmm. that's another thing people <laughs> would be more than willing to. Yeah, come on over you. to transplanting. Right. I mean, you know, every every hour you spend with me, you get a CMH certificate if you subscribe at a certain level. And it's really, really gay looking. It's super duper <laughs> rainbow. Actually, I should change it to my logo. I made, I made it in Canva before I had a logo. And if you subscribe at a certain level, you get a CMH certificate for every unit you complete. And then you just have to make sure that you 
email me the name that you were logged in using when you did that unit because some people like me, you know, my name is, I do have two Asher profiles now, but name has not always been exactly how it appears on Zoom and things like that. So yeah, as long as I have your name and I can keep it tucked away somewhere in case any of us are ever audited, you can take your CMH certificates and, you know, my subscribers who are subscribed at that level. And a lot of people are not, a lot of people are just in it for the conversation and they're getting their CEs another way. But, you know, if you were with me for a whole three-year block, you could get all of your CEs doing this. And also they count as ethics hours. Well, a couple of my blocks count as ethics hours. So you can get all your ethics hours with me if you want them. But yeah, and the certificates really are cute. Okay. Well, uh, we are pretty much running out of time. We've been talking for quite a while, but all of you out there, go check out AC's website, transplaining.info. Our next episode, we will be talking to AC and getting a crash course in transplaining and learn a little bit more about that. Join me and you can follow me at transplaining on Instagram. That's where I do a lot of my transplaining from. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thanks for joining. So, yeah, that's it for us for today. 